Hello and welcome to series two of The Rebuilders. I am your host, Sarah, and we are still on a mission to discover what it takes to come back after a setback. In each episode, we speak to someone who has dug deep to rebuild an aspect of their life or work and whose story provides ideas and inspiration to tackle obstacles in our own paths. The Rebuilders book was launched on Friday the 3rd of June and an enormous thank you to everyone who pre-ordered their copy. If you would like to hear more inspirational stories from The Rebuilders and explore learnings and tools that you can apply to your own setbacks, then you can grab a copy at Amazon or any bookshop near you. And I've popped an ordering link in the show notes. This week, I'm talking to Matt Davies, co-founder of creative agency Red Brick Road and patron at Ambitious for Autism. But more importantly, for this interview, Matt is also the father of 14-year-old Isaac, who was diagnosed with autism age three. Matt talks to me about rebuilding his expectations and assumptions about being a parent. As Isaac grows and as their family has grown, Matt describes his parenting experience as one of unlearning, a fluid learning curve always being redefined in part due to the fluid nature of autism itself. This fluidity has also altered how Matt approaches other aspects of his life and work as his mind has become more attuned to challenging his own assumptions about everything. This is a beautifully personal interview and Matt is clear that what he is sharing is his own experience of being Isaac's father, aware that everyone's autism journey and presentation is unique. When he was three, he was diagnosed with autism. So it's about 11 years ago now. It's been a massive journey of ups and downs and straights and excitement and fun. It's been an overall very positive experience, but one that we didn't expect. But 11 years in, we're very established with how he is and how we live together as a family it's kind of different he's at school now it's a school for autistic young people but they access the curriculum it's essentially a differentiated approach to education it's been brilliant for him I'd say he's been there since he was seven and that's been the biggest gear change I think to us really understanding him him understanding himself society understanding him Yeah, it's been the most life-changing positive event, I think, is going to that school. And now as he's 14 and he transitions into the upper school, we're starting to think about all those typical things that you do about all children, about whether he'll do further education, what his professional life might look like. He's got lots of passions. His biggest one is transport. He started going on trains when very young. And right at the beginning, I think a lot of autistic people and parents would concur that transport the kind of repetition of it whether it's the sounds the comfort the way a tube map is feeds into certain types of autistic brain i say certain types i'll come back to that point because everything i say is not a generalization it's always about my personal experience it's what you've learned through isaac yes absolutely and there is a lot of personal that is universal i think with everything but with autism there is a lot that isn't so explain a little bit about isaac's diagnosis in particular then so what you understand through what you've learned from him so Isaac, as I say, he was diagnosed just after his third birthday. He was our first child. But he has a younger sister, He's got a younger right? sister who is neurotypical, so she doesn't have autism. She's about six years younger than him. From early on, he was very distressed baby. And then up until kind of two and a half, he was very late with milestones. So he didn't walk till he was two. There was eye contact, but there just wasn't a lot of that typical learning that we didn't really know about because he was our first child but always sensed that it was so difficult with feeding, learning, crawled late, walked very late, and no language at all. 
just after his second birthday, the nursery he was at and ourselves said, you should probably have a look into some of these delays. It could be nothing at all. But so we did. And it was quite a torturous, difficult process because you're not quite sure what you're navigating. We saw doctors, we saw speech therapists. I always had a very strong instinct that something was different. First of all, he was kind of half diagnosed with a delay, but then eventually, and I knew nothing about autism whatsoever until basically the paediatrician said it in her office. She said, he's autistic, but it did make an enormous amount of sense there and then. There is an autistic spectrum. It's very broad. Increasingly, diagnostic criteria change. There's more adult diagnosis happening all the time. Girls were traditionally underdiagnosed. There's been quite a lot written recently about people being diagnosed much later in life, and in particular women, I think, in their late 30s and 40s who have been misdiagnosed previously because it presents itself differently in women. That's completely correct. They talked about a triumvirate, I think, when Isaac was born, which was repetitious behaviour and then social imagination and social learning. I always forget the third one, but I remember in the paediatrician's office I had a bit of a aha moment when she said well he's got very he wasn't speaking at the time so a delayed speech he didn't initiate play with his peers and some of the biggest problems have been at nursery because there wasn't that initiation of play the teachers didn't know what to do with him he was distressed it was a pretty difficult time but that's when my brain went oh he doesn't initiate play with his peers and then since I've seen that with my daughter she developed typically and from that sort of age was playing sharing being imaginative. Social imagination is a big thing that is part of the diagnosis. That's how it presents itself. More often than not in a three-year-old boy, they say, and it presents itself in all sorts of different people in different ways. We have spoken before about when one is a new parent, you have expectations about what that might be like, both in terms of, I think, pregnancy. You know, women often are shocked, maybe surprised that they have things come up during their pregnancy that no one had ever maybe spoken to them about. And everyone's experience is quite different. Some people's is quite challenging. Then again, being a new parent, similarly, you have some expectations laid down by the media, by TV shows, by movies, maybe through talking to your own parents. But rarely do you have a full picture of what it might really be like for you. You've spoken before about the fact that your expectations were quite different than the reality of being a parent to Isaac when he was first born. How did you manage that process of rebuilding those expectations it was very very hard in a word it was one of the most difficult times I've had really because when my wife Eliza got pregnant I knew it was going to be challenging life-changing I knew all the kind of barrage of emotions would come to me and obviously a man building up to his wife having a baby is experiencing it differently but I was prepared that parenthood would change everything so I didn't try and think it too much you know I knew there'd be no sleep that you'd have this new responsible person what then happened was a very traumatic birth for my wife so that was incredibly difficult and trying to sort of process that myself and processing it for her was much more cute the first few months were typical in the sleepless nights and the feeding but even from that early on feeding was really difficult sleeping was difficult and then from those moments where people start talking about a bit of babbling or you get a bit back. Mm. It just was increasingly hard. I think I felt I was doing something wrong and I didn't quite know what to do that was right, what would soothe him. And I remember someone said that 
in a world where you're comfortable, you've got no health problems, you can feed and clothe yourself, have that luck. When your child's not happy, there's got to be a reason for it. At the time, I just didn't know why. But in a kind of paradoxical way, I had this instinct that something was up with Isaac. He wasn't a typical child. He wasn't mm. experiencing the world typically and the world wasn't behaving typically for him. I wasn't apportioning blame. I was just like, why is this happening? Mm. And I think one of the biggest moments was on his first birthday. The guy I worked with, we've had very similar life stages and he'd brought his son, who's about three months older than Isaac, this toy car, you know, for one-year-olds and they get in and they drive around I gave it to Isaac and he sort of pushed it and going back to that social imagination point, there was no sense of giving it in and driving it. And my instinct, I remember then telling me, I can't teach him these basic intuitive mm. human behaviours mm. that I take for granted. Is he 14 now, He's 14, Isaac? Yeah. yeah. So that's 14 years ago. Yeah. Looking back, I mean, hindsight is a wonderful thing. Mm. And obviously this journey is still one that you're on. Yeah. When you look back to those first few years, I mean, here you are and Isaac is a brilliantly happy mm. boy. How did you and Eliza get through that time? We, and she'd probably agree with me, we just relied on our human abilities. We have close family and friends, but you know, in this modern world, it takes a village to raise a child, even though we all live close to each other. We had grandparents and siblings, but no one had experienced a similar thing. So the only feedback you got or the information you trusted, and it was authentic, was... Children are difficult. Some are more difficult than others. Everyone has a tantrum. You spoke late. And we just assume we're just struggling with it. We're just not brilliant at it. And I actually remember going for a walk. It was in the buggy. He was probably about one. And I just remember saying, we just haven't quite got into our groove as parents. But I was slowly building up resentment around people I knew who said, it's just parenthood. Who said it was easy? And I now see it when I had Tabitha and my daughter. It was really hard as well, but it didn't have that torment is the one word that I associate with before diagnosis, but also after when you'll get someone who's got a different makeup struggling in a world that's not really geared for him particularly. A lot of people around us said, all kids have tantrums, it will be fine. Yeah. I would have said the same if I had a typical child because I've had Tabitha since. And she had tantrums. She had tantrums. (laughs) But when she cried, we could deal with it. When Isaac did, we just didn't have any panaceas and solutions to cope with it. You said growing up in a world that's not designed for them. What have you learned about how the world can work with or against people who are not neurotypical or in Isaac's case, being autistic? Sensory overload is a massive thing. So big crowds and noise. And you live in London on the north side of London, so pretty big. Exactly. So there's that. There's what I'm doing now, speaking in half sentences, using too many metaphors. He often stops me and is like, you're not being clear. I need something more specific. And I understand it. We speak in codes a bit. We use double meanings. In a more senior environment, we kind of lie all the time or we filter or we edit our truths. Isaac is learning to do that a bit more, but he really, really doesn't. Mm. Actually, there's a beautiful honesty to the way he speaks. Often his literalness can be inspiring because he's, yeah, no, that's true. You're saying something very true. You haven't put a spin on it. If there's any situation at school where someone said something bad to him or he's behaved badly, he'll tell us. So there's a kind of honesty. The world's quite dishonest in many ways. And I think Mm. it's difficult for some people to navigate. You said before that since he's been at school, 
there's three dimensions of understanding. You're learning to understand him. He's learning to understand himself and society is learning to understand him. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So he started at mainstream school and that was just impossible because it was a noisy class. They were learning at different paces and he was kind of falling apart. It was too cluttered an environment. He needs one-on-one support and he needs people to understand autism. Even though it was a very good school, they had all the right intentions, they just didn't have the expertise on site. Whereas at the school he's at, it's tiny class sizes, experts in autism and learning. So it's really about building blocks. It's about a quieter, more peaceful environment. It's about a pastoral, but almost 360-degree way of learning. An example is... At his mainstream school, he didn't learn to write. There wasn't the patience and there wasn't the kind of intervention that the teacher knew was appropriate. I didn't know what it would be either. I knew he could type on a kind of iPad. When he started at his new school, he was writing within two months. It was crazy. He's dyspraxic as well, so he needs occupational therapy. There's a lot of stuff around coordination, hand-eye coordination and hand grip and stuff like that. And they literally had an occupational therapist and they had these pencils that had a sort of special grip on them that meant it was easier to hold the pencil, it was less tiring for him. Signals with his brain to his hands were smoothed out. It's not a very medical term, but you know what I mean. And he could suddenly write. There's loads of examples like that where if there isn't the right intervention, and that might be a bit of speech therapy around a certain area, might be a bit of occupational therapy, might be blocking a certain amount of noise, It might be a learning break because there's overwhelming stuff. There's loads of little things that amplify rapidly. Just not having the right pencil meant he wasn't learning to write. Or not having a learning break might mean there's an overstimulation. It's excellent that he's making so much progress in school in that environment. You said you're starting to think about what he will go on and do as a career. Now, you and I have come from similar industries, which is the creative industries, and looking at businesses that we've worked in, but also if we look at the industry census or all-in census, the representation of people with neurodiversity in agencies is very low, much lower than the general population. As an owner of a business, your co-owner of Redbrick Road, what have you done in your environment to make it more welcoming for people who are neurodiverse? First of all, I used it as a platform to campaign because we worked a bit with Ambitious About Autism. When Isaac was diagnosed, the awareness was much lower than it is now, actually. So even the word neurodiversity, I don't think, would have gained any traction. To your point, the the percentage of neurodiverse people in industries is really, really low. Mm. Specifically autistic across the board is incredibly low. It's something like 20% of autistic adults are in employment. It's the lowest of all disabilities. So there's quite a lot of prejudice and discrimination as well there. But the most telling stat within that 20% is 80% would like to work. There are autistic people of all abilities. So certain jobs would be relevant for them and certain wouldn't. What I wanted to do was sort of twofold. First of all, give an opportunity to someone who was just not finding the right environment to work in. I have partners who are on the same page. We all work together for years, so they've been on the journey with me. That's the first thing we did, and we actually have an autistic employee called Chris. He works in finance, but he also works in the creative department, which, as you all know, that's really unusual. That's not just unusual, no. but if you were to pick two departments that someone yeah. was unlikely to straddle, it would probably be finance and creative. It's really unusual, as you say. And what was great was he was given an opportunity, so he'd not found a right environment to work in at all. 
We did the whole process. We interviewed him in a quiet, more open way. And I think that's had an impact on how we interview people. Interviewing process has been a massive problem for neurodiverse people because speaking to someone cold, you kind of put on this front of yourself all those challenges that autistic people find particularly hard. Making cohesive different departments has been great because the finance department and the creative department have this bit of a go-between. He also does, it's coming back, but it was big before lockdown, we have a bar on a Friday called Cooper's Bar. It's called Chris Cooper. Because he said to me, I want to improve my social skills. And I said, well, let's do a bar. The money can go to Ambitious About Autism. There's another company in our building, so they've got to know him as well. And it was just a great social glue, really. There's also a lot of intersectional work as well with neurodiverse and other marginalised groups. I think Chris joining was the big thing. And where it's been brilliant is for awareness for other people. And then another big area I talk about is compassion. Chris, by his own admission, has had a tougher upbringing. He didn't get the intervention that Isaac has got, for example. He was in mainstream schools and they're very difficult. So just having that awareness and learning amongst your organisation is a cultural positive Did you take action to adjust the working environment or to educate people who were already at the company to ensure that when Chris arrived, it would be an environment that he could thrive within? Yeah, we absolutely did. Actually, one of our account managers had been a teaching assistant and had worked with a couple of autistic boys. So he did a little presentation beforehand. Then Ambitious About Autism do a kind of autism training and a person came in and did a day's course. So everyone was prepared. I think for a company like mine is a small to medium-sized independent, a lot of it is just common sense. Treat him like you treat normal people. You ask how they are, you give them space should they need it. And creative industries are getting a lot better. We have lots of people with lots of ways of wanting to work and it is about having separate spaces for them and quiet spaces. Chris, he's been with us quite a few years now and I remember going to an industry event and the word neurodiversity wasn't even Mm. used back then. They were starting to talk about disability, they were talking about race and gender and neurodiversity hadn't joined the top table, if you like, at that point. Having done that early work with Chris meant we were more open-minded, I think, as an organisation and it led to things like the mental health team and it inputted into our D&I missions and stuff like that. That's a really interesting point, I think. It's obviously wonderful for Chris to have a role in your business, but also it's helped educate everyone else within the business about autism and about other areas like generally being compassionate, generally supporting people's mental health. So it sounds like it's had a really positive ripple effect. What else has it taught you sort of going on this journey with Isaac? Because now you're a parent of two and 14 years has passed. It's obviously shaped how you approach hiring in your business, maybe made you more patient, more compassionate. What else has Isaac taught you along the way? So much. (laughs) Overriding it has made me a better person. And I wasn't a bad person before, but it has opened my eyes to an unlevel playing field, I think. From an early age, and now, Isaac will always have a bit more of a struggle with the real crazy world that we live in. However many adjustments people make, there's still always going to be challenges for him. And he knows that. And actually, it's amazing that he knows that, his level of self-awareness. And he can articulate that quite accurately now. And I've just been made aware of all these other people out there who have these challenges For ages, I couldn't hear a child cry, which is mad. Because those early years were just so difficult and my heart would just be broken hearing him cry because we didn't know how to deal with that. Had had no soothing coping mechanism whatsoever. But since Tabitha, I heard her cry and I realised there's more of a normality to it. 
it's just made me a bit more aware of people and trying to be a bit more compassionate about people. A lot of people might disagree. <laughs> but, um, I didn't know you before this, so I no, can't judge so you. Can't but, you know, I'll find I've, out. You might get a mix of people. <laughs> you said at the start as well that it's a journey with Isaac. And parenting, you know, anyone who has children, it's a journey. What works one week doesn't work the next week. What works for a four-year-old doesn't work for a 14-year-old. I mean, my kids are only five and seven, and I fear the teenage years already. But I imagine that journey is even more varied with a child who has autism. How do you face that constant course correction and readjustment that all parents have, but you have an extra layer of? It's true, it is. That's why I write the blog. Sometimes I look back and I can relate to it, but it's like, oh God, that was then. The changes happen all the time. There's a really big irony at the heart of autism. He's very routine based. So the more he knows what's happening, the better. And the more his days planned, the better. However, the minute you look beyond a day or week, you don't really want to think because it does change all the time. The sort of standard curriculum in school, you'll do some sort of GCSE, some sort of further education. No idea about that because what he'll study or at what point he'll go into a more vocational role, I just no idea whatsoever. I kind of learned to unlearn because actually deep down for all my talk, I still have the stereotypical, I've got a son and he's 14. What's going to happen when he's 16? Is he going to go to college or is he going to become a train driver or whatever? You know, there's all these things that I actually did learn to shed quite early on, but they're still buried deep down just in having to sort of plan ahead or think about the next stage. And why the school's so good is even in their small, very small autistic school, every kid is really different. At the moment, we're like, what path does he go on? Does he pursue the more academic path? Do we start thinking about career pathways? They overplan because the outcomes can be so different. So I try and just be on it all the time and learn to have his back and make sure he's happy. You wrote on your blog, I think it was about Isaac getting off in the morning at a really specific time and then letting you have exactly an hour in bed, but awake because he's clearly up. And then he says, right, you need to get up now, which sounds like a pretty good morning routine. And you said in it, it's about following his lead Mm. rather than, I guess, the normal desire for a parent to be in control. And it's such an interesting learning, I think, maybe for all parents, which is you bring a set of expectations to your child, but there are their own people. The set of choices laid out before them and they will follow different pathways. How have you learned to try and follow his lead? We do it by giving him a sense of independence and a sense that we understand him. I think that's the most important thing. In a typical way, you go, come on, let's go here. Let's do that. Let's try this. Let's try that. And that is all really antithetical to Isaac because he likes things planned. He likes routine. And any form of chaos or unpredictability is just going to rise his anxiety levels. I haven't even talked about anxiety, actually, hugely. So what we do is we go and get a sense of what he wants to do and go with it. But at the same time, it's not like do nothing. It's within our dialogue, if you like. So I know he Mm -hmm. likes going on train trips and he might suggest one and I'll say, okay, but at the same time, let's do something else that's productive. Kind of freedom within a framework so he can guide but with a little bit of parental steerage. As he goes out and starts to get older and connect with the world and you've seen him do that in his 14 years, what are the biggest misconceptions that people have about him or when they begin to engage with him that you wish people were educated on? The big misconception about autism probably still is a kind of coding mathematical genius back to kind of Rain Man that he's brilliant at maths and he actually really hates maths. 
So there's that. But the expectation about autism is still about friendships and sociability. That's probably the main thing. People kind of assume that he might not be very sociable or empathetic, where actually he almost over-indexes on sociability and empathy. He's so sociable, it's astounding. Much of that is because he's learned social skills at school. So if he was to meet you now, he'd be like, hi, Sarah, really nice to meet you. You look very well today. What's your job? And it's become really authentic and really well-meaning. It's really adorable. And so often I'll go into a shop with him. He'll want to order. There's a sandwich bar next to where I work. And he's just like, where's the little man? I just want to see him. I want to see him. And also he really empathises. So I've got quite a down face. I'm not really smiling. Or if he tells me a joke and I don't burst out laughing, he's kind of, why aren't you laughing? And that's part of a challenge, if you like. Mm. I think that he can't really read facial signals. But in a way, it's, he yearns in honesty. He's just like, yeah, you just look really miserable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, just sort of tell me the truth. I could hear when you talk about it how much that first year or so affected you and Eliza. And it feels really visceral when you talk about it. If you could look back now, 14 years in, and give yourself a piece of advice back then, what would it be? I would probably say, don't punish yourself. It's not you. It's not your fault. There's a reason for it. And you'll find that reason and it will be okay. And you'll shed a lot of preconceptions, even though I'm contradicting what I said earlier, about parenthood. You'll learn and have access to a world that you just knew nothing about. That's not to say I'm not a big believer of, oh, it's all amazing. It's not that at all. And Isaac wouldn't describe his autism as a superpower, which some people do, which is fine. But that it will be okay, it will be difficult, and it will be a different journey to what Mm. you might have expected. And when he was diagnosed 11 Mm. years ago, and you really do look out into what you think might be an abyss, just make sure you get the right intervention and help. And that I put down entirely to my wife because she got on the case immediately. Lastly, then, you talked so brilliantly about this shedding, I think is the word you use, this sort of peeling off of expectations in relation to parenthood and raising children. But do you take that now into other bits of your life too and challenge your preconceptions? I try to, actually. One of the preconceptions I had to shed was I really like football and I was like, I'll take Isaac to Crystal Palace and he'll have a kit and he'll love it. Got no interest in football at all. And also playing football involves all those sort of cues like teamwork, reading the opponent. It's noisy, it's busy. The rules are actually really complicated and don't play to him. But I shed that quite quickly. And one of the first blog posts I wrote was about actually we bonded over trains and it's all cool. What has happened is my daughter's really into football and loves it. And I take her and that is just brilliant because it's totally unexpected and against gender stereotypes and it's all completely natural and authentic. With her, I try and follow her lead a bit more, Mm. look at her independence, see how she's socialising, look at her kind of resilience. Shedding the preconceptions was very grounded in being a parent of a child, but it's definitely had a kind of halo effect. If I see a child having a tantrum in a supermarket, before I might go, what's wrong with a parent? And that's probably what I try not to do the most, judge any form of parenting, because there's almost always a reason And it might be because the parent doesn't know something or who knows. And sometimes I have to check myself Mm. because I might quickly run to preconceptions or assumptions that I have. But more often than not, I try to keep them away. You have been listening to The Rebuilders, hosted by me, Sarah Tate, in conversation with Matt Davies. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, then please do leave a rating or review to spread the word. 
Join me again in two weeks' time to hear from another very special guest. Thank you.